Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, this morning we come before you, our great God, and we humble ourselves. Father, we understand as we come to your word that this is holy ground. And Father, we could have no understanding, no no ability at all to know what it is you are saying apart from the work of your spirit in our lives. Father, I pray this morning that you would fill each of us with your spirit, that we would hear your word with gladness, that we would grow thereby as the pure milk of the word. Father, strengthen your people, convict as is needed. Lord, shape and form your people into the glorious image of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for we know this is your will. Lord, help me this morning to represent your word correctly. Father, I thank you that you are my help and the help of everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray and thank you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I said, we are working our way through this mighty introduction to Paul's epistle to the Romans. And last week we looked at really verse 3 concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And we saw that the concerning was linked to the gospel of God. This gospel is concerning his son. And so we looked at these statements that Paul gives us really in verse 3 and 4 because they are linked together about the Son of God. And we see that, first of all, Jesus is the gospel message. It is centered in him. There is no Christianity without him, without Jesus. It is not Christianity is not merely a set of teachings that we follow or a person that we try to emulate, but it is the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and his work that matters, that makes Christianity what it is, and that saves us. And then we looked at his various titles, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we saw that Jesus is his earthly name. It is the name meaning Savior, or the Lord is salvation. And that that it links directly with his mission on earth, that he came to save his people from their sins. He didn't come to be a political leader. He didn't come to save people from poverty, poor health, and a myriad of other things. He came to save his people from their sins. And then we saw that he is Christ, Christ being his messianic office. It refers to his messiahship, that he is the perfect prophet, priest, and king, all playing a role in our salvation. And then he is Lord the the title that is only ascribed to God himself, the sovereign one. And so we began to consider who this son is that Paul writes of. And we saw that God's son is the eternal word of God from John 1.1, by whom all things were created and who sustains all things. And we saw that this word, this eternal thought, this eternal mind of God is not just a thing. It is not just a force. But it is a he, it is a person, and that this person took on flesh. And as John says in his 
first chapter of John, he says that he tabernacled among us. He wrapped himself in a tent, if you will, his body, a human body. And then we saw that he was born at a defined point in time, but that that was not the beginning of his existence. He was sent forth of God, we're told. He was given as a son from heaven to earth. We saw that he was not born by ordinary means, by normal generation from one generation to the next, but that he was born by supernatural means. He was born of a virgin. He was conceived directly by the Holy Spirit. And so he bypassed the ordinary generation of Adam and the sin of Adam that he would have received like we all receive. And so we see his sinlessness in his birth, his virgin birth. We also saw that he came in obscurity and humility as the root of Jesse. Because the line of David, the great tree of David was no longer standing as a, a big, beautiful tree, but it had fallen into obscurity. And all that was left was a root, but a root was left. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we saw that he was born through a specific line in history. We're told that he was born through the seed of David. He is the promised seed of the woman from Genesis, but he comes through the nation of Israel. And he comes specifically through the tribe of Judah. And from within Judah, he comes from the line of David, the kingly line the great king of Israel. And then we saw that he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem, and that his mother was of the line and lineage of David as well, as, as was his legal father, Joseph. So he is the son of David in his humanity. That was really the point of verse 3. But now we turn to consider the second half of the Apostle Paul's great statement, Verses 3 and 4, and I'm going to read them together again, just for continuity. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, that is, in his humanity, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So that is going to be our focus today, declared to be the Son of God with power. So whereas in verse 3 we considered his humanity... Now, secondly, we have the divinity of Jesus. He was declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus was declared or called the Son of God many times in the scriptures before his resurrection. You might remember, as we talked about last week, the angel Gabriel, when he came to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus the Christ. He told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Called the Son of God. We also see in the scriptures that the demons knew who Jesus was. <laughs> they knew very well who he was. And they say, what have we to do with you, Jesus? You son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? So they knew his identity and that he had power to destroy them. He was also uh, declared by men to be the son of God. Remember Peter, when he came walking to Jesus on the water and the storm rises up and, G and Peter takes his eyes off of his Lord and he begins to sink and he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus stretches out his hand graciously and he catches Peter and he says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the great storm ceased immediately. A great calm came over them. And it says, then those who were in the boat, this is Matthew 14, 33, came and worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. This one is the one who has power over the weather, and he is no ordinary man. And then you remember Peter in John chapter 6, kind of a sad chapter actually. Many, many disciples turned away from Jesus, turned from following him. He had been feeding them, multiplying bread. And then he started saying some things that they felt were too hard for them. 
He said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you are to have life. And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear this? Of course, he wasn't talking about physical blood and physical flesh. He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He's talking about believing in him, partaking of him, taking him into your life wholly as you would eat food and drink, drink. And they walked away from him and Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, will you too also leave? And Peter is the one who says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we know and are sure that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so mankind declares the son of God, Jesus is the son. And then you remember the centurion at Jesus' death. After seeing all the strange and supernatural events surrounding the crucifixion, in the middle of the day, from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, darkness covered the earth. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, we're told. And he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the centurion being a soldier and having, had, having witnessed countless crucifixions was shocked by this because no crucifixion victim would have that kind of strength as he was suffocating on a cross to proclaim as he did. And so he said, truly, this was the son of God. And then by God himself, you remember at the baptism of Jesus, the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. As the Holy Spirit comes down and, and rests upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And then again at Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus transfigures himself. He appears in bright white clothes and his face shone like the sun. He is unveiling that tent. He's peeling back the glory and giving a glimpse of his glory to his innermost disciples. To Peter, James, and John. And then you remember Moses and Elijah appear to Peter, James, and John, they see them and they're talking with Jesus. And then a cloud overshadows all of them, the form of the Holy Spirit, because the triune God is there, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father again says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, hear him. And so Jesus is declared the Son. These all seem to be declarations that Jesus is the Son. So the question is, what did Paul mean when he said Jesus was declared the Son of God by the resurrection? Well, the key to understanding this is that Paul is using a special word in the Greek here. When he says declared, that word is the English word that we have, um, which is horizon, or from which we get the word horizon. And it means, um, it means horizon. It means as the line of demarcation that separates the land from the sky. As clearly as that demarcation stands, it is determined. It is a thing that is proven, that proves that the sky separates from the land. And so that's the word he uses here. He says Jesus was declared. He was marked off. He was clearly delineated. He was proven the Son of God by the resurrection. Not just identified or called the son, but proven to be the son. So notice first this. Paul doesn't say Jesus was made the son of God by the resurrection. What he says in verse 3 is he was born. That word means made. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. That refers to his humanity. But in verse 4, he's declared to be the son of God with power. So why this distinction? Well, Paul is teaching us the systematic theology of the Son of God in these two verses. In verse 3, the humanity of Jesus, according to the flesh. In verse 4, his divinity, according to the spirit of holiness. Paul is making this distinction between made and declared because Paul is saying that by the resurrection, Jesus was proven to be who he already was. He wasn't made the Son of God at his resurrection, he didn't start as a man in this life and become God or become a God, as the cults may teach. 
No, remember Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, a son is given. And Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, sent forth, made or born of a woman, born under the law. So he was given, he was sent from heaven to earth to be the savior, to be Messiah, to be the Lord. The apostle John said in the first chapter, again, and the word who was in the beginning, pointing out his eternality, he always was, who was with God. Last week I mentioned that that preposition means literally face to face with God. And who was God, was made flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, took on flesh. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, some people have gotten hung up on that term, that phrase, only begotten of the Father, because it sounds, it kind of sounds like he was um, created by the Father. But really, the word for only begotten just means this, unique. It means unique. He was the only one of his kind, the only begotten Son of God, the unique one. And Luke tells us that he was conceived of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, without the input of man, which also tells us that he was divine. So the man Jesus, who was, again, verse 3, born of the seed of David, or if you like, the son of David in the flesh, is here in verse 4 proven to be the son of God in his divinity. He is the God-man. So here we have it. Born of the seed of David, 100% man. Born, excuse me, proven to be the son of God in his divinity, 100% God. 100% God plus 100% man in one person. <laughs> My friends, we cannot fully understand it. This is mystery of mysteries. But it's okay. We're not meant to understand every nuance of the Godhead. What we are called to is to believe his word because God says it and he demonstrates it. So this two natures in one person is what theologians call the hypostatic term. That means just that two natures in one person. And it's important we understand this and insist upon it in our proclamation of the gospel because it has critical implications for our salvation, as I hope to demonstrate. This is not just about learning theology so we have knowledge in our heads. This has real implications for our eternal souls. And it's important we have a right understanding. Listen to how the Chalcedonian or Chalcedonian Creed puts it regarding this hypostatic union. Quote, his two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Jesus is one, end quote. That's right. And that's consistent with scripture. There's all kinds of wrong understandings about who Jesus is, and it results from, it stems from elevating either that he was all God and not man truly, or that he was only a man and not God. We need to be like the Bereans, brothers and sisters, searching the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Test what I'm saying by your own study of the scripture and with prayer to see if these things are so. So what proves, what marks Jesus out as this unique son of God, as Paul is trying to tell us? Well, he says that Christ is proven to be the son with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So these kind of couple of phrases here, we're going to take each of these phrases in turn this morning. So with power, first of all, it's important to bear in mind that Paul is contrasting, again, verses three and four, according to the flesh, according to the spirit, the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. There is power associated with the eternal son of God, but there is weakness associated with the flesh. When Christ came into the world, he didn't come in power, did he? He came in weakness. He came as a helpless babe who had to be fed and cared for, just like all of us. He didn't come with all the pomp and the circumstance, the fanfare of the rightful king that he was. 
even though we're told that the Lord God would give him the throne of his father, David, and that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. In other words, no end of his kingdom. So what changed from when the son of God was in heaven, eternally existing as the word, to when he came to earth in the form of a baby? Well, his form. His form is what changed. And Paul deals with this theme extensively in Philippians chapter 2. So I would invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at this together. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. And take note, um, particularly, of the word form as we read this together. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. But Paul is saying that Jesus, who is the unchanging essence of God, that's what form means here. It means unchanging essence. And so he says the form of God. He is the unchanging essence of God. Even though he was in every point equal with God, totally equal with God, identical, co-equal. He was willing to make himself of no reputation. He was willing to empty himself. Now, I'm going to tell you what that does not mean. That does not mean that he ceased to be divine. That's important. And it can't mean that because of what we know about form. So again, he is in the unchanging form of God. And the form of God is his essence. That can't change. So he doesn't lose his divinity. But what it does mean is that he was willing to set aside his rights and privileges of deity for a season, in order to take up or add to himself the form, again, the essence of a bondservant. That was the same word that we opened with in Romans 1, slave, doulos, human. That's his humanity. So you can think about it this way. Christ intentionally weakened himself by adding humanity to his godness. He didn't reduce or eliminate the godness or remove his deity. He just added humanity, which was to add weakness. He changed his form. And by weakening himself, he willingly subjected himself to the limitations of his own creation, right? I mean, we are told that Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He was tired. He slept. We're told in Luke 2.52 that as a boy... He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now ask yourself, how is it possible that God would learn anything? How can God, the son, grow in wisdom? Or take this account of Jesus being asked about the the last day, the final judgment, and when it would be. And Jesus said this, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. How is it that Jesus, son of God, didn't know that information? Well, we have no answer to this if we don't understand the dual natures of Christ. That's the reason we're going through this. Because Jesus in his humanity did not know. In his divinity, he did know. He knew all things. But in his humanity, he didn't know. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And then we're told ultimately that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. How, my friends, can the sovereign God die? He can't. That's the answer. But in his humanity, he could and he did because he willingly weakened himself. That's what the author to the Hebrews meant when he wrote in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, 
crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, made a little lower. That means to lower in rank or influence, to decrease in authority. Jesus had willingly put himself in subjection to, subservient to, the Father, and even to angels. For a time being, he set aside his divine prerogatives for a specific purpose that he might redeem us. The angels were created by God as supernatural beings. They weren't subject to death. But Christ in his humanity was subject to death. And I want to make this point clear. It was not because Jesus had the sin of Adam. That's what makes us subject to death, right? We all inherit the sin of Adam. That's why we die. That's why we age. Not so with Jesus. We already established that. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost. And so the transmission of sin from Adam was cut off, was interrupted from Jesus. But he was the servant of God. He became the servant of God. And as Paul says to the Corinthians, he was made sin for us who knew no sin himself. He was sinless. But God laid the sins of all his people upon Christ. And so he was weakened and subject to death. And it's also here in Hebrews 2.9 that we find the answer as to why the Son of God weakened himself. He says, for the suffering of death, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. That's it. In other words, that he might be our substitute, that he might stand in our place where God the Father deserves to punish us for our sin, Jesus stands there willingly and he says, punish me. Like Abraham with Isaac. Abraham was ready to plunge that knife into his son and right before he was about to do it, God stopped him. But God didn't stop himself, if I may say, with reverence. He plunged that knife fully into his own son. He spared not his own son that he might taste death for everyone. Had he remained in the form of God, if he were God only and not son of man, he would not have been able to be our substitute. That's why this matters. He wouldn't have been able to die in our place. He needed to be 100% man in order to die in the place of sinful men to represent us. Listen to how this concept, I think, is a little bit hard to understand sometimes, but listen to how Paul explains it later in this same epistle to Romans in chapter 5, verse 19. He says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. You see? Just as many were made sinners through Adam's disobedience, he's the one man who disobeyed, so we are made or declared righteous by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ. A helpful illustration for this is if you think about um, a country and the president over that country, right? It's the idea of federal headship. If the president of a country makes a bad policy, does it affect the citizens of that nation? Yes, it does. They all suffer for the wrongdoing of their federal head, right? That's the same idea here. Just as one man, Adam, sinned and plunged the whole race of men into death through his disobedience, so it took one man, Jesus Christ, through his perfect obedience to redeem the entire race of men or the nation that he would represent. You remember when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? How is it that Jesus is able to take away the sin of others? To represent others, right? Because he's the only qualified person who didn't have any sin of his own. The only qualified one to represent others and take upon himself their sin because he didn't have any of his own sin to pay for. He was the righteous one. He is that sin-bearing servant Isaiah wrote about, upon whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross. 
Or as I mentioned earlier, Paul to the Corinthians, for he made him, referring to Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Christ came into this world in weakness, not in power, that he might fulfill his role as the Savior and to stand in the great gap that separates every sinful man from holy God. My friends, we cannot approach God on our own. There are people who believe that they can, that they can come to God on their own terms, in their own way, in their own time. But we cannot. The scriptures teach us that God himself must condescend. That means to come down from above. That term condescension might strike you as odd because when we use it in a human context, it's normally a bad thing. When somebody speaks condescendingly to someone else, they're speaking down to them, right? They're treating them as inferior, as less than they are. But when we're dealing with God, his condescension is gracious and kind. Remember, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Here is eternal God who we are told in scripture is set in blazing glory. He is a consuming fire. And he comes to earth in the form of a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he wraps himself. He veils his glory, which is gracious. Why? Because otherwise he would incinerate man. Remember, no man can see God and live because God is holy. And our sinfulness demands the punishment of God. Only those who have eyes of faith see Jesus as God. Like Simeon and Anna, when Jesus' parents brought Jesus, the baby Jesus, into the temple to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon and Anna, they were waiting. They knew. They had eyes of faith to see this is the Messiah. The physical eye does not recognize him. That's why Paul said the princes of this world did not know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. My friends, he is high and lifted up as my brother Stan prayed this morning. He is holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. We cannot come to him on our own terms. We are those, as Ezekiel describes this way in chapter 16. Listen to this. As for your nativity, meaning your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field where when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood. I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. The only claim that sinful man has upon God is for his wrath. Let's be clear. So in order for God to condescend, to come down to earth in a human body to which we can relate, to reveal God to us and speak to us in language that we can understand and use pictures and illustrations that we can grasp is gracious. And then to experience suffering and pain and to be tempted in all points like we are as humans yet without sin the scripture says and then to lay down his life in our place that we might avoid the wrath of almighty god that knife plunging into us for all eternity called hell but rather to give us his life abundant life is infinitely kind and gracious the condescension of god the Son of God came in the likeness of sinful flesh, the likeness, in weakness. But Paul tells us, back to Romans 1-4 here, that he was declared the Son of God with power. And the, the power is not linked to the declaration per se as much as it's linked to this next phrase, to the resurrection. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But, 
But first, let's take this phrase, according to the spirit of holiness. Declare the son according to the spirit of holiness. Now, I admit to you, brothers and sisters, this is a difficult phrase. And um, I wrestled with this phrase a lot this week. I pray that what I have to share is right. I think the challenge here is there are two primary interpretations for this phrase. It can either be, and there are godly men who align on both sides of this, so I'll preface it that way. But listen, there are two primary interpretations here. Either Paul is saying that Jesus was declared the Son of God by the capital S, Spirit of Holiness, in other words, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or he's saying that he was declared the Son of God by the spirit, lowercase spirit of holiness, referring to Jesus' own spirit, his divine spirit, which was holy. You see the distinction? So if Paul meant the Holy Spirit, my question is, why didn't he just say that? Why does he use this unique phrase, spirit, or excuse me, um, spirit of holiness, that is used nowhere else in the New Testament? This is the one and only place it's used. Well, it seems to me that Paul did not want to emphasize the Holy Spirit, but rather Jesus' own divine nature, since it is consistent with this contrast that he is drawing for us between verses 3 and 4. In the flesh, in the spirit, right? Jesus is born, son of David, in the flesh, declared, proven to be the son of God in his spirit, by his spirit of holiness, to, because he was divine. And I think that's correct. You remember uh, Luke 135, I've referenced this a few times, but, but Jesus is called that Holy One by the angel Gabriel, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you, he says to Mary. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So what makes him the Holy One? Is it the Holy Spirit that makes him the Holy One? Or is it his divine conception by the Holy Spirit. Even before he was anointed at his baptism by the Holy Spirit, he is the Holy One because he is holy in himself. He is God. He is God the Son. And so the argument goes. So Paul, according to this interpretation, is here saying, Jesus is proven to be the Son of God with power according to Jesus' holiness, according to his sinlessness, according to his divinity, his otherness. What set him apart, what demarcated him as the sky from the land from every other person, made him unique, the only begotten. So the question is, how does Jesus' holiness or his sinlessness relate to the resurrection, right? Because Paul is making that connection here. He says, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And I think we'll find our answer in Psalm chapter 16. So if you would, please turn to Psalm 16. This is a Psalm of David. <clears throat> and let's take a look at uh, verse 10. Psalm 16:10, "For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will not allow your holy one, there's that phrase, to see corruption. So God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that he was the holy one of God. Because he would not allow him to, to see, quote, see corruption. He was raised from the dead and he was raised on the third day before corruption set in. So we know David was prophesying this in Psalm 16, but he wasn't prophesying it about himself. And you know how we know that? Because Paul himself says in Acts chapter 13, when he was in Antioch in Pisidia, Acts 13, 35, he quotes Psalm 16, 10, which we just read. And he says this, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and, note this, and saw corruption. 
David saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Jesus was proven to be the son of God according to his spirit of holiness, if you like, his divine nature, because God cannot allow his holy one to see corruption. But I will say it's also true that the Holy Spirit played a critical role in raising Jesus from the dead. So that's why this other interpretation, I think, has validity as well. I don't think it's the primary thrust of what he's saying here, but follow me. It is also true. Look at Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. <clears throat> but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, God's spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It's right there. So the Holy Spirit, you could say, is testifying something through this powerful, mighty act of resurrection. He is proclaiming Jesus is who he said he was and who others proclaimed that he was as well. He is the son of God. He is divine. And this would make sense because everything, follow this, everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is surprising to some because we automatically assume, well, Jesus is divine, so he was able to do these mighty works that he did in his own power. But actually the scriptures teach that everything he did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 42 and 61 have the same idea that the Lord put his spirit upon the Messiah, upon the Son. Jesus said, excuse me, the, the prophecy in Isaiah 61 is, and the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's Messiah speaking. And John tells us that Jesus received the spirit of God without measure. In other words, he had the fullness of the Holy Spirit upon him. That's why we see the Holy Spirit at the incarnation of Christ. That's why we see it at the baptism when the Spirit was de descending in the form of a dove upon the Son. That's why we see it when the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days, and he sustained him during those temptations, and he ministered to him following the temptations. Acts 10.38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. See? The Holy Spirit was the agency through which Jesus performed his mighty deeds. The Holy Spirit, you could say, is the inseparable companion of Jesus the Christ. Why? Because, again, Jesus had taken on flesh. He willingly weakened himself so that he could be 100% dependent upon his Father through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this quote from Mark Jones, who is a guest contributor to the Desiring God website on this very topic. Uh, Mark says this, importantly, quote, importantly, Christ's humanity, both body and soul, does not get lost or gobbled up by his divinity. Because of this, Christ's humanity needed the Holy Spirit in order to have communion with God. His prayers to God were never simply the prayers of a man, nor even the prayers of the God-man to the Father. But more specifically, they were the prayers of the Son of God to the Father in the power of the Spirit. Never was a prayer uttered before God from the lips of Christ that did not have the Holy Spirit working powerfully upon his human nature to enable him to speak the words the Father had given him to speak. God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you'll see as you read the scriptures that they work together. They're together. They're in unison. They're one. So when we see that the son is raised from the dead, it shouldn't surprise us that the spirit is there raising him from the dead. 
right? Our catechism question that we did this morning, number 16, said this, when God had created man, he made a covenant with him that he should live and enjoy all the benefits of creation, but that he would die if he forsook the obedience that comes from faith. God commanded him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and thus forsake his childlike dependence upon God for all things. Now, remember, loved ones, man was originally created to be in perfect fellowship with God, right? In the garden. And his fellowship perpetuated, continued through obedience and total dependence upon God. But we know the sad end of that story is that man sinned. Adam and Eve didn't believe God. They believed the lie instead of the truth. And so they failed and they plunged all of humanity, their posterity after them into sin and death. But Christ as the perfect man, the God man, shows us what perfect obedience looks like, what total dependence upon God looks like by operating how? Fully through the agency and power of the Holy Spirit. This has tremendous, massive implications for us who are given the Holy Spirit by Christ, right? Because we're told that we should walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh, right? We'll get to that later in Romans, Lord willing. But here's the point. Christ is our model. He's our model of what, of what the perfect man looks like, one who is totally dependent upon God for all things, in communion with God. And so we should strive to be as well, praying, reading, communing with God through the Holy Spirit, totally dependent upon him and not on ourselves. So the Spirit definitely was there and raised Christ from the dead. But the scripture also teaches that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead, there it is, and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And while we're at it, the scripture also teaches that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Turn to John chapter 10, please, and take a look at John 10, verse 17. John 10, 17 and 18, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. That's resurrection. He is empowered to do this, and he will do it. This command I have received from my Father. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all raised Jesus from the dead. The Trinity is all involved. And what a wonderful proof, right, that Jesus is divine. Because God raises the dead. So if Jesus raises the dead, he also is divine. Now remember in John 4, when Jesus is speaking with the uh, woman at the well in Samaria, he says this, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So I would argue that maybe a third possibility for the interpretation that we're reading here in Romans 1, 4 is this. Declared to be the son of God with power, according to the triune God, who is the spirit of holiness. You see, if God is spirit, as Jesus tells us in John 4, then the father is a spirit of holiness. The Son is a spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of holiness. <laughs> Loved ones, these truths are too high, too much for my mind to get around, to, to embrace. But they're in the scriptures, and they are to be embraced. And then we come to our last phrase, by the resurrection from the dead. And I have to be honest, again, this is another challenging phrase. Some translations say this, <clears throat> um, by his resurrection from the dead. 
that Jesus is declared the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And that's not what the Greek says. It's not accurate. A better interpretation is this, that he was declared the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by a rising from the dead, or by a rising of dead persons. Those are better translations. So here's the idea. Rather than interpreting this as an isolated event only, which is the resurrection of Christ, I think what is in view here is that we should regard this as the first of a series. Jesus rose from the dead, yes, and amen. And we too, who are in Christ, will also rise with him. As surely as he rose from the dead, you too, if you are in Christ this morning, you will rise with him. When your eyes close in death in this world, you will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. And one day, your physical body, that's why it's important that we understand Jesus rose bodily. He wasn't just a phantom spirit. He rose bodily from the dead. We too will rise bodily and be given glorified bodies that can never die. And that really is the key for understanding resurrection. Because some will say, well, Jesus wasn't the only one who was resurrected, was he? What about Lazarus? Lazarus was raised from the dead. Well, was he? I would say that Lazarus was resurrected from, excuse me, was resuscitated, (laughs) resuscitated from the dead. Why? Because did Lazarus stay alive forever or did he see corruption? Right? He died again. He was risen resuscitated, but he died again. Jesus is the first to rise, which is the word for resurrection, a rising, a standing up, never to sit down again. See the point? He rose from the dead and he lives and ever lives to make intercession for us. Praise the Lord. So this is the first in a series. He's declared the son according to the spirit of holiness by a rising of dead persons. He rose and we too shall rise. 1 Corinthians 6.14, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We too shall rise. He is the firstborn from the dead, the first among many brethren. And this is, here's the point, the ultimate proof that he is the son, that he is eternal God. Um, We read Psalm chapter 2 for our call to worship this morning. Wonderful Psalm. And he says, most attribute this Psalm to David as a Psalm of David, but we don't know for sure. But it sounds Davidic. And he says this, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So who is this king that God has established who also calls his son? Well, Hebrews attributes this very prophecy to the birth of Christ. Today, I have begotten you. In other words, there was a specific point in time when Jesus was begotten. He was made of the seed of David. He was formed. He changed his form and incarnated. He took on flesh. He wrapped himself. But... Very interestingly, Paul in Acts 13 attributes the same prophecy, you are my son, today I've begotten you, to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He says in Acts 13, 32, and we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the father begot the son. He brought him into the world. That's what begot means. He brought him into the world at his incarnation. But he also begot at his resurrection. He brought him again from where? From death to life, to the land of the living. Today I have begotten you. I have raised you from the dead. 
Jesus, no doubt, did many, many miracles during his earthly, earthly ministry. Since you could say that they are all vignettes, they are all uh, brief episodes of unveiling the glory of God, like we talked about with the transfiguration, or with the calming of the storm instantly as the disciples got in, as Peter got into the boat. But his glory remains largely veiled until this, the resurrection. And in the resurrection, we see this full orb display of the power of God. That word for power is dynamite. Boom, there's an explosion. It's called the resurrection. God declared his son, my son, with the resurrection of the dead, never to die again. He is the first fruits. He is our forerunner. Take heart, all you who trust in the Lord. You too will rise from the dead, never to die again. So in closing, I would say this. Jesus, though he weakened himself, was restored to full authority and honor and glory after he had tasted death and was raised from the dead and then ascended to glory where he is now at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus said right before his ascension in Matthew 28, this is the Great Commission, all authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and earth. And this is our basis for our going, our going out, our strength that we might preach Christ, the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of dead persons. He had to be fully man in order to represent us as our Savior, to be that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he had to be fully God to absorb the divine wrath no man can bear the wrath of God and come back from that. Those who bear the divine wrath of God are in what's called hell. And hell lasts forever. It is never absorbed. The wrath never ends. But Jesus absorbed the, the wrath of God fully and came back victoriously from the dead. I love this Puritan prayer where we don't know who, it's in the Valley of Vision. He says this, Great was your strength in enduring the extremities of divine wrath, in taking away the load of my iniquities. If Jesus were not God, he would not have been able to endure this divine wrath. But he did. And our sins, loved ones, if you trust in Christ, your sins are paid for in full. He rose from the dead, and that is the proof that the sacrifice of the Son of God was accepted by the Father. He was vindicated. The Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus said of his work of salvation, it is finished. Praise the Lord. Next week, Lord willing, we will go on to consider the final verses of this introduction of Paul's great epistle to the Romans. May God add his blessing to the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we, we praise you, Lord. You are mighty. And Father, who are we that you should condescend to us, that you should graciously reveal yourself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was full of grace and truth, who is the very image and imprint, the exact copy of God who showed us the way of salvation that he needed to lay down his life, the sinless life, in order to forgive us our sins, in order that we might be declared righteous who trust him by faith, who believe this message, this gospel, this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, Father, help each one of us to know who you are, for this is eternal life, to know you 
and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. May we have boldness to proclaim this truth, this message that alone has power to save. For there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, open their heart. Father, for those of us who do know you, may we glory in the Lord. May we rejoice that just as Christ was proven who he said he was and who he was declared to be by the resurrection of the dead, so too we have a glorious future awaiting us of resurrection, standing up never to die again, to live with you in glory. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word and your spirit who guides us. Help us to depend upon you in this coming week in everything Help us to bring everything to you in prayer, Lord, even the smallest things. May we not depend on ourselves and in our own strength for anything. For in the flesh we are weak, but in your spirit we are strong. May you receive the glory and you alone. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.